Hey, good morning, Mercy Hill. Welcome to worship. It's good to gather with you today, even if it's done virtually. Uh, we appreciate you being here. It's good to gather with family. And welcome to those who are gathering us that are not part of the church here at Mercy Hill, but are seeing us from further away. We welcome you this morning as we open up God's Word. As we think about that, we're back in the book of Luke's uh, last week during Easter, Nate took us to Colossians 3. So let's jump back into Luke chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 41 through 44 this morning. Luke 19. We're, if you'll turn there in whatever copy or however what word you want to use. As I pondered this passage, Nate asked me to preach this morning. Uh, looking for a title, I, I looked at what seemed very obvious was what makes God cry. It's quite evident right here that he weeps over the city. But as I looked deeper into this, another thought came to me, and I, I want to ask it of you. Do you know the time? Now, I'm not asking you, do you know what time it is? That's a pretty simple thing. We look at our iPhones or our tablets or the clock on the wall, if you still read analog, analog clocks. Uh, we can find out the time most anything. But do you know the time? And we're going to see how that plays out in here. You know, in this coronavirus and this pandemic time of being isolated, it's tough to really sometimes know what day it is or what month it is. They seem to come together, they blur together because we just are out of sync with what we normally do. But we really want to ponder the time that it is. Now, time's important. We are really enamored with time in our lives. Think about it. We mark time with birthdays, with anniversaries, with Christmases, uh, with milestones in our life. When's the child going to start school? When are they going to become uh, high school graduates? When are they going to move out of the house? I mean, after a time, you know? We plan for retirement. We plan for vacations and career changes. Time is vitally important. I want to share a thing that I like about time, and that's going on vacation. Uh, especially if we're going to Florida. I love to drive. I like to have, we're going to get a car anyway, so we'll rent a car. But I plan on the trip to miss Nashville and Atlanta uh, as we drive down because they're crazy busy at certain times of the day. So we plan around this, so we leave at a certain time, so we get through these cities as unencumbered as possible. But seeing as how I'm in church, i got to really tell you the truth. What I really like is when we first get in the car and I put the phone up there and you either hit Waze or Google Maps or whatever GPS you're using, right? And you hit and it said, go. And that voice comes up and says, you will arrive at your destination at 12.36 p.m. And I'm like, oh, yeah? Game on. That's a challenge to me. Come on, guys. You know what I'm talking about. I'm going to fight to make it there by 12.35. It's a challenge. It's time. We almost worship time. Did you know, though, that God cares about time? Did you know that God is knowledgeable of and concerned about time? After all, he did create it. Think back to Genesis 1-1 with me. In the beginning time, God created the heavens, space, and earth. In the very first verse of Scripture, the very first thing God created was time. Very important to keep that in mind. Now, he is not bound by time. He's not bound by any kind of atmosphere we're bound by. He's above and beyond all things. Always has been and always will be. He's eternal. But he is concerned with time. And in this passage, we're going to see how that plays out. 
So let's jump into this four this short four-verse passage and see what God has to say about time in our lives. Reading from the ESV. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Pray with me. Father, as we open your word, speak through me, Lord. Use me as your conduit. As we like to say, hide me behind the cross, because this message is all about Christ. It's all about what he has done on the cross and what is important for us to learn from this. Soften our hearts, open our minds to receive the words you present in Christ, we pray. Amen. Time. I see three distinct points to ponder as we unpack this passage. We'll look at the majority of application at the end instead of during the message. We're going to be looking first at the tears of the king. Secondly, we'll be looking at the blindness of men. And thirdly, the prophecy of pain. The tears of the king. Look at 41 and 42a, just the beginning again with me. Jesus, so speaking through Luke, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Let's stop there. He wept over it. Now remember, a week ago, two weeks ago, before Easter, Jesus, or, uh, Nate spoke on Jesus and the triumphal entry. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. They spread their cloaks on the road. They have palm branches. They're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we know he's going into Jerusalem. So when we see that he drew near the city, this is important to note. It's not any random city. It's not like, let's say, he's going to Nashville and decides to stop in Mumfordville. This is the city. This is Jerusalem. It's very important to note the city. But what's he do? He weeps over it. And this is not just a tear dripping out his eye. This is not just a little worry. This is a sobbing cry. It reminds me of Gethsemane where he cries out to God and sweats drops of blood. He is concerned over the city of Jerusalem. Now, he's not concerned so much with the buildings or the, or the, the structure. He is concerned with the people encased in the city of Jerusalem. It's basically called personification. So when he speaks of Jerusalem, he speaks of all the people inside. We need to keep that in our head and our heart. But what is it about the city that's important? Jerusalem, the city God chose to have his name associated with. Did you know Jerusalem's been around since Genesis? When Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac, it was Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem. God chose to put his name in Jerusalem. When Abraham talked with Melchizedek, who was mentioned only in Genesis and Hebrews, the king of Salem, Jerusalem, the king of peace. Jerusalem has been around for thousands of years. The city itself means possession of peace. This is the city of David, the king of Israel, the one who conquered the lands and finally had peace in the land. This is King David who wanted to build a temple. But God said, no, your son will build it, but he planned it. 
This is the city for the pilgrimage, for the main feasts of Israel, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And Jesus cries over the people, not the building. He weeps and is concerned for what's going to happen. This is the place where Jesus himself will stand on the Mount of Olives when he returns. He rides in a humble king to bring peace to Jerusalem. And he saw the city and he grievously wept over it. And in scripture it says, he's saying that, would you even known, had known on this day, the things that made for peace? Specific day in the timeline of history. This isn't just a random point where Christ decided to roll into Jerusalem whenever he felt like it. This is a God-ordained time and point in scripture where Christ fulfills the Old Testament riding in on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, on a foal. This is not just some day. This is a moment in time. It is a specific on this day. Don't miss that. Jesus came to bring peace to all of, peace to all of humanity through the witness of the Jews. And we know, we know that didn't quite work, did it? Why the Jews? Is it that important? Remember, Jerusalem is filled with Jewish people, with the Israelites, the temples there, and all the pilgrims, as we've talked about. You know, in Romans 9, 4, and 5, Paul talks about this when he says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus fulfills this, and he says, you've been giving all these things to share the witness to all of humanity. And on this day, I come to fulfill everything you've looked for. But what does he say? If you'd only known the things that make for peace. Yet they chose to reject him and his peace. How about you? Do you have the peace of Christ? I mean, truly the peace of Christ in your heart. Now, it's not the peace of the world, but the peace that only comes through knowing Christ and experience the forgiveness of Jesus from knowing the sovereignty of God in all things. In this tumultuous time, in this pandemic, in this crazy world where jobs are going south and we can't hardly leave our homes and we can't embrace one another and we can't draw together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't go to the gym. Things are just in an upheaval throughout the world. Jesus comes to bring peace into your world. And into mine. But they rejected him. In God's sovereignty, he's chosen to bring this passage to light. And I really believe that. Last week was the resurrection. It was Easter. The culmination of all things. The center point of all scripture. When Christ hangs on a cross and dies for the sins of all humanity. But yet today he brings another message. I come in peace. Jesus says in John 14 and 27... Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So it really begs the question, how about you? Do you have the peace of Jesus in your life? Do you know the risen Savior? Are you walking with the knowledge that your eternal future is set in glory with him? 
And it's very, very important to think about because of the rest of verse 42. So the tears of the king, Christ weeps over the city. He weeps over the people. He weeps over the occupants of Jerusalem. And here's why. Look at the rest of 42 with me again. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The blindness of men. Now, I don't know about you, but I have the tendency to be able to look right at something and miss it being there. I often need some help finding what I need to find. There was one time I was in grocery, and this is just one time of many, and I'm looking up and down this aisle for this specific item. And I know it's in this aisle, and it's a specific thing and a specific place with a specific name, but I can't find it. So what do I do? I ask one of the young ladies and say, hey, I'm looking for such and such. And they walk right down the aisle, and I'm standing in front of it, and she goes, it's right there. It's no different than when I'm home up in the linen closet going, Mel, do you know where this is? And she brings out a box of Kleenex this big and says, if it would have been a snake, it would have bit you. Sometimes I need help finding what I need, right? It's crazy. We're blind to the gospel sometimes. You see, I, I hate to say this, but I've wrongly shared the gospel with those gods that allowed in my life as follows. That we can wait on God for he's sitting back wringing his hands in anticipation of our response. Well, according to this verse, I'm wrong. Let's, let's unpack this. Follow with me. This is going to take a little bit of work. You see, we can't come to God without him calling us. And this is the key to the understanding this. In Isaiah 53 and 6, the prophet writes, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In that, what Isaiah is saying is every human ever born that ever will be born that is alive at this particular moment in time has all turned their back on Christ. They've all turned their back on God. We've turned away from him. Because of the sin we inherited from Adam and Eve back in Genesis, back in Genesis 3, we all turn our backs on God. And without him reaching out to us and drawing us in, we have no hope. That's a pretty scary thing. I thought there was supposed to be peace in this message. Well, there is. There is. See, God uses the word preached or taught to bring people to faith. And now this is why we draw people into the church. Yeah, we want to gather with them. We want to make friends and family. This is why we use uh, scripture in witnessing. Because God uses his word to draw people close to him for faith. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.21, and this is one of my favorites. For since in the wisdom of God, the word did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Succinctly, Paul writes in Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In John, John 6:43, Christ himself says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. This is important. Because they have rejected Christ in here. As it says, but now these things are hidden from your eyes. God is not obligated to wait on our fickle selves to make a move to come to his call. Yes, scripture is clear that God desires no one to perish. But it's also clear he need not wait until we decide. Friend, is Christ calling you today? 
Do you hear him? Listen, for he calls through the word. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Psalm 32 and 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in flood of great waters they will not reach him. In Psalm 69, 13, But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, a.k.a. the people, bringing peace and bringing hope. He spent three years teaching in the synagogue, healing people, raising people from the dead, sharing the gospel in all the surrounding area. He comes to share peace with the world. And they reject him. And he says, guess what? These things are now hidden from your eyes. Don't turn your back, Lord. Don't turn your back on the Lord. He may only give you one chance or two. He may wait years upon years. We do not know. Listen today. Have you ever made the statement... Well, it can't get much worse than this. I have. Usually it's a silly thing to say because as soon as you say that, things just get worse. And unfortunately, I believe they do here as well. As we looked at the tears of the king as Jerusalem is visited by the God of all creation who humbles himself to become human and rides in on a colt, on a donkey, to sacrifice himself on a cross... And we looked at the blindness of men because they turned their back even on that great gift given in Calvary that day. They don't listen to the call of God. What we see here, there's also a prophecy of pain. This is really why Jesus weeps when you understand what's going on. God has blinded their eyes to the truth. And here's what's going to happen. 43 through 44, read along with me. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Notice again the motif of time twice in there. For the days will come upon you and at the very end the time of your visitation. In A.D. 70... Jerusalem, or the Jews, decided to take a stand against the Roman army, and it was not a good move. When Jesus prophesied this, we want to make sure that it's fulfilled in history so we can understand how to apply that in our lives 2,000 years later. Allow me to share these facts. The siege of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD was the decisive event of the first Jewish-Roman war in which the Roman army captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed both the city and its temple. Josephus places the siege in the second year of Vespasian, which corresponds to the year 70 of the Common Era, or AD. Even the disciples mentioned this to him in Matthew 24. and Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point on him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? 
Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is fulfilled completely in historical time, in 70, about 35 or 40 years, depending on the timeline, right after Jesus died, this gets fulfilled. So we can take what God's word says, literally, because he's trying to teach us time is of the essence. There's an urgency to what's being said. Sometimes when we witness, we don't really press for an answer because we don't want to push the people away. But we don't know when Christ is coming back. We don't know when that person's last day is. Sometimes we wrangle around with our own faith and don't get serious about it. But we don't know the time often. Let's look at the last part of these two verses again. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Through the writer Luke, Jesus makes one last mention of time. Let's recap what we've got going on so far and see how this means in our lives. Folks, we looked at the tears of the king when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the king of peace, only to be rejected. And the blindness of men comes into play because God is done calling them because they've pushed them away. They've pushed God out of their life. And he prophesies of a pain coming. Now, this was a physical pain that happened in Jerusalem, but the pain of death and the separation from God for all of eternity is nothing. It pales in comparison. This pales in comparison. We need to get serious about this. So the application. So what do we do with the passage and its teaching? Today, I see one distinct application with two possible responses. And the main application is this. This is a matter of the heart. It's not legalism. The hearts of the people had grown cold to the God that had been with them for thousands of years. Remember, we look back and they had the prophets, they had the priests, they had the kings, they had the miracles, they had the Ten Commandments when he called them out of Egypt. God walked with them and had, gave them all the reasons they needed to follow him, but their hearts grew cold. First and foremost, this is to the people of Israel. First and foremost, this is to the people of the church, not to the non-believers. This is to you and I who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. This is important to understand. The people of Jerusalem lost their true heart connection to God. They're just going through the motions. How about you? How about me? You see, we're living in this crazy yet comfortable society. It's easy to get complacent. Much like Old Testament Israel, we have it pretty good so we can easily divorce ourselves from Jesus. But God calls us to come back with him and first and foremost, check your heart. Now, only you and God can know the true, if you're truly saved. Others can only guess. My suggestion, go in your prayer closet. Seek him who knows all things and seek clarification. Ask this question, am I truly a born-again child of God? Yeah, now, some of you guys have been in the church, well, since the womb, I've heard. I know I've talked to some people, some like myself, a little later in life. But don't divorce that. Don't dismiss that question going, man, I've been around 40 years. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, so did the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, the people that taught the law. And they turned their back on Christ. This is a call from God to clarify your salvation, to make sure it has been said there within the pews of most churches as anywhere up to 50% of the people are still lost. They're just going through the motion. 
They're just going through the motion. Don't rely on some fantastical event that happened perhaps when you turned to Christ in an emotional moment. Maybe even followed through with baptism, yet truly are not forgiven in Christ. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Make sure that you're saved. This is a call to the church. Secondly, though, this one hurts, folks. When was the last time you wept over unbelievers? When was the last time you really worried about people that are dying, not because they're dying from this existence, but they're going to die and go to a Christless eternity? When was the last time you had compassion on the lost and down and broken? Me? It's been a long time. I can claim the excuse life's been difficult because of my choices as it has. I don't have the same emotions I did when I was 16. It's no excuse. The God of all heaven, the God of creation, who can just speak whatever he wants into existence, comes into the city he called and the people he called his own and weeps and sobs over them because you know why? They're going to go to an eternity apart from God. We have this ministry here at Mercy Hill called Mark 12. We reach out to the homeless. We've seen people come to Christ. Sure, we helped them get fed and get a place to stay, but you know, more importantly, we've seen people come into the kingdom of God. When was the last time you wept over your neighbor or family or friends that are dying and going to hell? When was the last time we wept collectively as the church? People are dying from the coronavirus. It's horrible. How many died? I will never have a chance to receive Christ. If you're truly a born-again believer, saved by the blood of the Lamb, the lost of this world will crowd your heart. It affected Jesus. The reason Jesus wept over the city was not that they were, was that they were blind to their own demise and they knew it not. So we close with this one last verse. Again, we're going to repeat from 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, which is a direct quote from the Old Testament. And again, I call to those of us who are in the church and believe that our salvation is set. Check your heart. This is a time for the church to arise. For those of you who don't know, maybe you're just hearing this message for the first time. Know that God calls through the word preached. That God calls through his scripture. That God calls to you. That he cares enough to die on a cross for you. And this is what he says. He says, for in a favorable time, I listened to you, and a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Friend, don't wait another moment. I don't know what decision you need to make for Christ this morning. I truly don't. But I do know this. The God of all creation hears a true, honest, heartfelt plea for forgiveness through repentance and a desire to walk in his way and his word. So as I pray, whatever decision you need to make for Christ, make that clear with him today. Father, as we close, uh, as we, we just ponder this, Lord, that you would weep over such an unworthy people. That you would weep over those that you call your own, that have called upon the name of the Lord, that have maybe surrendered to you, but yet they've grown cold, they've grown complacent. 
hearts have grown callous in the world. We've got comfortable because we've got everything made. I pray that you turn the hearts of the children back to the Father. I pray, God, that you would just call out and pierce our hearts, that we would just give up everything we have, all for the cause of Christ. And make sure, Father, that we are truly saved. And I I reach out to those that have not yet turned to Christ, Lord. Send your spirit to guide them. Let them hear of your love and your mercy and grace. Turn their hearts back to you, Lord, that they would be saved. That their eternal future would be set today at this moment. And that when things get back right, they'd follow through with the church. And follow through with believers' baptism. And follow through giving their lives to you for all of eternity. We ask these things not in my voice and not in my word, Lord. We ask these things in the powerful and precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We want to enter into a time of communion now as we always do. Even though we're separate, we ask you to go get your, uh, your elements. Get some juice. Get some crackers. Whatever you're going to use at home. Um, and let's partake in communion together. This is also a time, friends, of where we usually give sacrificially. We usually have stations set up at the church where you can drop off tithes and offering. Understanding that the work of the kingdom only goes forth as we supply the need. So one way you can do your giving is this time is to text the word Mercy Hill, one word, to the number 45777. That's Mercy Hill to 45777. And friends, give generously. Maybe you've not been impacted by this uh, downturn economy. There's those who have, and we can help them in this. We can also always send it in the church. If you go on the website, there's a post office box. And there's online giving as well. So as we go to a time of communion and we take a break and we spend some time together just communing with the Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray, friends, that you will find peace with him. And today, you've been encouraged by the fact that Christ calls. And he calls you now.